awesome show for you today. This is Fluid Truth, and I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. We explore a simple question of what equity looks and feels like from varying perspectives. The content offered in this segment is personal reflection and interpretation. The views of my guests are not necessarily the views of Fluid Truth or Quinnipiac University. For clarity, this conversation has been edited. My guest today is Mr. Brian Dennis. Mr. Dennis is a proud native of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Professionally, he works for the Henkel Corporation and is also a transportation planner. We sat down to chat about the generational differences that presented and the challenges that he faced by being a black man from Connecticut. It was an awesome conversation, and you'll hear it right here at Fluid Truth. My guest today is my longtime big brother, although not related by blood, my friend, my colleague, brother, Brian Dennis. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for agreeing to speak with me here on Fluid Truth. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I've been seeing you doing some good things, some great things hearing about you. And uh, I'm so happy I was invited on to just have a chat with you. Absolutely. So let's jump in because you know that's how we do it anyway. (laughs) So tell me just a little bit about you. I mean, for anyone who has not had the pleasure of meeting you yet, who are you? What are you all about? Where do you hail from? Come on, give me the overview. All right. So we'll, we'll try to give it to you. Uh, there's a lot in there in all these years, but we're going to try to give you a condensed version. So basically, I'm Brian Dennis and I'm from Bridgeport, Connecticut. And I was born in 1962 and November 10th. And so basically, I come out of the city of Bridgeport. But uh, I also grew up and came out of what we call the PJs, the projects. So growing up, I have a very large family. My dad had 10 brothers and sisters. My mom had five brothers and sisters. So you come from a family that's like a village. So on both sides. You're going to have everybody. There's nowhere you can go to escape and not having family around. And my family was also very rooted in the church. So I had grow up in the church. So, you know, coming up in the projects, you learn to grow with the other kids that you grow up with because it's like we become a group. You know, we got to protect ourselves in our particular projects or our particular building. I grew up in Beersley Terrace in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which had 16 buildings, eight floors. And Lord knows how many, I think there was over 3,000 people that lived there. So we grew up in that type of atmosphere. And every section of the projects had its own section where you grew up because that's where you live. So you hung around those particular buildings. And so, you know, getting my experience and growing up as a kid, you learn how to get along with people and how to form bonds by hanging out with the kids when you go outside to hang out in the projects. Um, unfortunately, some years, about after 10 or 12 years of living in the projects, my little brother, got burnt on the radiator in the projects. In the projects, if anybody grew up in the projects, they know they keep the heat on so high and they control the heat, that the heat is so high that the paint melts off the wall. So my little brother one night was in the bed and uh, we had to share a bed because my uncle who just came back from Vietnam was staying with us. So he had the other bed. My brother rolled over and he rolled onto the radiator. And so after being on the radio for about three or four minutes, he was totally burnt from his torso down to his thighs. Um, Fortunately, my parents, somebody introduced my parents to an attorney and uh, the attorney said they had a suit. So eventually, basically, my parents were able to win a suit against the projects and we actually got a cash award in my brother's name. So this by this happening, this allowed us to move out of the projects and move into a home. So we went from the projects to living in a neighborhood. 
And um, it actually wasn't that much difference because now we lived in a neighborhood that was an ethnic neighborhood. So we had Italians, we had Cubans, we had Latinas, we had everyone you could think of. If you ever saw the show Little Rascals and you're familiar with Little Rascals, my street is called Rosedale Street in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Rosedale Street was the street that everyone flocked to from all over in that area that we call the Hollow, as we grew up in the Hollow. And Rosedale Street was the Little Rascals street of the Hollow. We had games. We had wiffle ball. We had kickball. We did Evil Knievel jumping on the ramps. We played basketball. We played flag football. We played dodgeball. Anything you could think of as kids to do in a group and have fun with, we did it on Rosedale Street, even boxing. Um, So I grew up coming out of the PJs, developing those those relationships. And then I moved into a neighborhood where we developed those those relationships. So how that forms in terms of equity and helping to build a person's character, it helps you because you get to see a whole slice of life where a lot of people don't understand what it's like to live in the projects. They don't understand what it's like to come from out of there. But I do because I, I came from there. But then a lot of people that lived in the projects won't understand what it's like to live in a neighborhood where you have neighbors and you have kids that you can go out on the street with. So I kind of feel like I had a really enriched life when it comes to equity and that nature. And because of that nature, that built my my mindset for who I was. That's why I'm an outgoing person, because I was always around a lot of people. And you had to be outgoing to be around all the kids that I was around and growing up. So when I was growing up, I was never really a follower. I was more a leader. So a lot of people, I always I guess, influence people to like hang with me or be like me. And um, that's how I began to develop as I went into my teenage years. And then I went off to high school. And then now you're in high school, you're in a whole nother different level and you're trying to adapt. No one gives you a book for this. No one prepares you. No one tells you how to you know, start life in that manner. And if I can interrupt you, if I can interrupt you, high school now is enter the relationship that you started to have with my family. And that's yes. the connection there. And I was just about to go there. Y- y- yes. So at, at going in high school, you're trying to find your way. You're trying to fit in. You're a freshman and everybody's putting down the freshman. Fortunately for me, coming from a large family, when I got to high school, I already had about 20, 25 cousins that were older than me that were already there. So for me, it wasn't that much because I hung with my cousins. So I knew their friends who were older than me. So most times people thought I was an upperclassman when I was just a freshman. So getting around, trying to get your fill around, um, you know, my family also was very athletic. The Dennis's, the Hattons, the Jeters, these are all the surnames in Bridgeport that a lot of people know. So my family was known for playing basketball and playing sports. And here I am trying to live up to that. Unfortunately, I was so fast that on the basketball court, I was just too fast for the ball. So basketball, I never really kind of made it. I kind of kept getting cut. But I found my niche 
stage in football. So my freshman year in football, uh, I began to, to, to play football. Later on in that year, in our art class, because I did art and things of that nature, is where I met your brother. He and I had art together as freshmen. And because of our love of music, our teacher used to let us bring a special album in every Friday. Every ethnicity could bring in their style. So when it was our turn to bring it in for the African-Americans, uh, your brother and I bought in the same albums. <laughs> so it was Earth, Wind & Fire, and we had the same albums. And so we kind of, from there, I was like, oh, you just play yours since you bought it. And there's where we developed our friendship, which was in 1976, in Mrs. Senior's art class. And so there's where we developed our, our, our relationship, and there's where I began to know your family. And uh, you were definitely really, really little girl at that time. But uh, that's when I met your family and became a, actually an immediate part of your family. So since 1976. That's awesome. So wait, let me ask you a question because I'm really just enjoying the way that you're walking through how it even started for you. So now that you have, and you've laid this really great foundation and and I know you're going to talk about when you went off to college and I want to hear, but how do you think your background and what you've seen, even as, you know, from a younger younger person to a teenager. How does that impact what you see now? Right now, 2022, things look different. Yeah, things are a whole lot different. We have moved so far away from the neighborhood mentality. I think that's what's lost. I think today neighbors don't know neighbors. Neighbor on my street, we all been went and been in everybody's house. You sat and your parents sat in your neighbor's living room and my neighbors came to our living room and they were able to call you out. I have a real quick story living in the projects where I wasn't supposed to go to the store because where we lived in, well, where we were, my grandparents lived in the projects was on the other end and the store was on the other far end, which would be at least a half a mile. So because I was stealing pennies out of my grandmother's piggy bank, I had a pocket full of pennies and I was like, oh, I'm going to go to the store and get me some penny candy. Back in the day, you had penny candy. And so I call myself sneaking off because once you're outside, they're not going to know where you're at because they're way up on the floor. So you can really pretty much do what you want. So I slipped off. I knew how to go to the store and I seen this gentleman that lived in my grandparents building named Mr. Knight. And everyone knew Mr. Knight was a snitch. So I was like, oh man, Mr. Knight just saw me. And as soon as he saw me, he was like, you know, you're not supposed to be going up to the store. I'm going to tell your grandpa. And I already knew I might as well just go on to the store and get my penny candy. Because by the time I get back to the building, my grandparents are going to know that I snuck off to the store. (laughs) Sure enough, I got back. They knew. And then they wanted to know where I got the money from. And then that's how I had to say, well, I kind of took it out your piggy bank. And I got in really, really big trouble for that. But I, I said that story to say we don't have that anymore. We don't have the Mr. Knights anymore that's going to call you out. And then if we did, parents aren't receptible to that. They're, you can't say anything to somebody's child, especially if you say it in love or, or, or if you say it. So I think what's going on today compared to when we grew up, and the Bible tells us this, that love was going to wax cold. I just think now love is waxing cold. We don't have that neighborhood mentality of people being uh, neighbors and knowing one another and looking out for one another. So it's, it's, it's a huge difference um, with the young people today coming up and growing. And then plus they have a lot more 
uh, avenues as well with the internet and things. I mean, back in those days, all we had was the games I mentioned. So you go outside and you play all those games. I mean, eventually we got Atari and all the, you know, we got all the initial stuff that they got better now. But back then we just had us. We just had outside. And we just had playing. Now everybody got their phone. Everybody got their laptop. And so everybody's separate doing their thing. So that's kind of the difference between teenager and growing up to now. So what do you think about what is happening in our country as a whole? So even more so than the teenagers versus then, yes. now. But what's so, going on in our country? Well, growing up back in my day, coming up, you, we knew about racism. We knew, we didn't understand it. Because like what, what's going on too now is back then, see, they painted a picture that wasn't true for us. And I think it was very unfair. So when we got taught history and we got taught this, they painted at the picture. Oh, Thanksgiving, we came and we did this. And so this is what we knew. This is all we can only go by what we know. And then when they gave us Black History Month, they just always kept saying every year, George Washington Carver. So that's all I knew. George Washington Carver, he created peanut butter. So they gave us what they wanted us and they wanted it to be a pretty picture. But see, now what's going on is the veil has been ripped off and the real history is coming out and being told. But now that it's being told, people are being resentful and it being told because we really didn't have that camaraderie with the Indians. We actually took their land. We actually bought you know, disease here. And, but they told us it was a Thanksgiving and we offered them the food. And, and so now the truths are coming out and now people are uncomfortable about the truths as if to say, Oh, well, that wasn't me. That wasn't. And the problem is, is how the message is being delivered because I don't necessarily think people are blaming people of today. They're just trying to tell you the truth to show you how we got to the stage of your question of how we got here. We got here because the truth wasn't told. And now the truth is trying to come out and now they want to stifle the truth. They want to pull books from the schools because it's talking about what really happened in America, what America was really about. America's a great country. We love it. We were all born here. So anytime back and and just to go back quickly, when I was growing up, the favorite thing they would say to us is, oh, why don't y'all go back to Africa? So we're, so we're like, we're not from Africa. We were born here. You know, so how are we going to go back to Africa? So we kind of knew racism then, but we still had, but like I said, the neighborhood I grew up in, we didn't practice racism. We played with Italian kids. We played with Portuguese kids. We played with Cuban kids. I have some good friends who are my friends from grammar school now on Facebook who were Italian, who were Portuguese. And we, the kids, didn't have that. We saw it some in some of the parents. I saw it in some Italian parents um, coming up too. So for us back then, we just had what we saw and what they told us. And I think now the veil has been ripped back and people want to speak about what took place, but some people don't want to hear it. And that's why the country now is so divided because people, they want to paint this picture instead of letting the truth reign and let us deal with the truth so we can move forward. So what does move forward in 2022 look like to you, considering that you had this background, that you came up in Bridgeport and you came up through the projects and you had this diverse um, um, growing up situation? 
what does knowing the truth and exercising that truth look like for you right now? What what it looks like for me right now is you got to address the elephant in the, the room. We, we, we've got to be grown adults and we got to be able to accept truths without getting um, personal or letting it draw resentment unto us. We've got to, 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 to understand and let it out. There's a reason why we got to this point. There's a reason why certain class of people aren't at the same level of other certain class people. There's a lot of systemic things that have taken place in this country that we need to address and we need to deal with it civilly. And we need to act upon the book of Matthew. We need to approach people where what we've been directed to do. You know, we can't just say, oh, well, this is my way or the highway and my rights and so forth. When other people have have rights, we ought to come together at the table and we've got to put it all on the table. OK, this is America. This is what took place in America. These are the systematic things that took place. Now, let's put together. And this is where my corporate uh, experience comes in. Let's put together and let's look at the problem trees? What are the root causes? Let's create a business case that will help us eradicate the stages that we are at. So for me, I would like to do a uh, business case. Let's take a look at the systemic issues that got us to this plan. What were the root problems? What are the root causes? What are the problem trees? How are we going to correct that and put that together? And let's create a business case that addresses, because that's what businesses do. That's what they do to succeed and that's what they do to grow and that's what they do to get better. So why can't we do that as a country? Sit down with some of the brightest minds and create a business case that helps us uh, deal with racism, helps us deal with bigotry, helps us deal with um, all the systemic things that have been taking place in America. We've got to sit down and do it. The longer we, we keep pushing it off and people become more divided and we're, we're just not going to get there unless we sit down and make that happen. So let me ask you this, and you make a really great point about us being able to sit down, look at all, have the greatest minds in the room. Although I think by and large, this country has a a number of really great minds that won't be in the room, but get the greatest speakers, get the greatest thought leaders and, and the like, sit us down. Let's have this conversation. But my question to you now, considering that is, has racism shown up in your life in a way that really kind of stopped you in your tracks? Because yeah, yeah, I know that you've experienced racism. Yes. Uh, who hasn't at yes. this juncture of our lives, right? But has yeah. it stopped you in your tracks and made you really have to retract and think about it? Tell me about that. Yes, it did. And because in fact, that was just a couple of years ago. And so I'm almost 60 years old. And uh, basically I was doing, um, everyone knows I'm a hustler. I always get my grind on. And I was doing a, a app called Amazon Flex, which basically you go pick up the packages and you put them in your car and you do you deliver them directly to the people's home for Amazon. So I was do the places they were sending me. I was a little suspect because when I started it, it was in the fall. So we all know in the fall, by the time five o'clock comes, it's dark. <laughs> and so usually the route that I did would be between five and eight. And they would be sending me to places like Ansonia, way deep up in Ansonia and way deep up in Seymour. And I'm saying to myself, I am a black man rolling with this nice car through these streets and and I got to know where I'm going. So sometimes I'm going to look lost. And so I remember going to a, a, a place and I got out the car. It was dark. So I had to have my flashlight. And where I parked, I parked a little bit ways from the front door. So I literally had to go to my car and I took the package out and I walked it to the front door. On my way back, <laughs> I saw a flashing light 
And it kind of startled me. Like I said, it was pitch dark. I'm way out in Ansonia somewhere. And in my mind, I already know how life is and what it is out in these areas. And so I hear a voice and it goes, do you have some business here? And I was like, uh, yeah, just if you were standing there, you just saw me deliver a package. Correct. Uh, I, I, I don't know that. I said, well, didn't you order a package from Amazon? Aren't you expecting? It should have been an alert on your cell phone. Oh, yeah, probably so. And I said, OK, so then what's the problem? So the guy looks at my car and goes, oh, I didn't know Amazon delivers in private cars. I said, well, right on my car, I have emblems that say Amazon Flex. I'm wearing a vest that says Amazon Flex uh, so that you can clearly see who I am and that I'm a driver. And be, but and he said, well, you know, well, it's a suspect because we know that your people don't live in this neighborhood. So I'm like, what, what do you mean by people? You people don't live in this neighborhood. So that was one that it that made me stop because here we are. That person didn't have to say anything to me. That person could have shot me and claimed I was trespassing on their thing. It really made me stop because I was like, what if this would have been like one of those stories we just read or heard about in the news? This person necessarily didn't have to sign their flashlight or stop me. This person could have pulled out their gun and said they were threatened. And so it really had me. And and I, I believe after that particular one, I told them I don't want to go in those areas unless it's springtime, because in the springtime, it stays light until nine. And I don't mind that. But it was pitch dark, pitch. And it, even though it was only 6 p.m., um, that really made me think that this person could have done that. I had one other incident. As you know, I drive limo services for people. And I was and at this time I was working where you we take your car. We take you in your car. So I was looking for a house out in Westport and I didn't have the right address. And I remember the guy that I was doing it for. He was like, oh, no, hurry up and get out of here. Be careful, because if you're in the wrong yard, someone's going to mistake you and you never know what can happen. So I had to always be conscious when I was going to do those jobs to make sure I got the right address, because here I am pulling up in someone's driveway and I'm black and I'm pulling up in your driveway and no blacks live in your neighborhood. And there you go. And one last one, I was delivering newspapers. As you know, I've done everything and my car flipped over. I was in, um, Monroe. My car flipped over and I had to get out through the sunroof. And as I'm walking up the street, it's cold. It's seven degrees out. I'm freezing, but I know where the police station is. So I'm walking towards the police station. Less than five minutes of me walking. Here comes the police. It's it's about 530 in the morning, quarter to six. So they go, hey, can we help you? Is everything okay?" I said, no, my car flipped over on some ice. I slid and it slid into a bank and flipped over. I'm trying to get some help. And they say, all right, we'll take you down to the station. Now, I'm sharing this story because it's real. Here's what the police officer said to me. He said, you know something? He said, we're not trying to be funny, but, you know, if you were white, you'd still be walking. And so I'm in my mind. I was like. Okay, well, I'm glad I'm not white because I needed that ride, basically. And he said, because the only reason they came out there was that neighbors saw me walking down the street and they began to call that a black man was walking through their neighborhood. 
But that was a time where I was like, thank you, Jesus, that they did call because I was freezing and I needed that ride. But the, the fact that the officer shared that with me, it was startling to me. It was like uh, not really startling because I guess I should have expected where I was at. But for that to be told to me from a white officer, I thought that was like really interesting. And this is all pretty recent. These instances, you don't have to recall the years. Last incident was quite a few years ago, but the incident I just shared with you was last year. So even it sounds like throughout the course of your adult life, you've had some experiences. You've seen some things and your brother and I had experience in Boston by being stopped by the police for being black and being in Boston. And uh, we got questioned and we've. We got, um, it was a good cop, bad cop thing. His cop was good. <laughs> my cop was bad. My cop was screaming at me and spitting in my face. We, we are both like 19 years old. We went to go see your brother Paul at MIT. And it was early in the morning, Sunday, we were going to head back to Connecticut. It had been snowing. So they said we didn't properly clean the car off. So they were like, what's the visibility of your, your windshield? And they were screaming at us. And what are you doing in, in Boston? And whose car is this? So they're screaming at us. And and us not knowing of being taught, I was like, okay, officer, can I talk to you? And I began to get out the car so I could stand up. And that officer wow. took his billy club out of his waist and he placed it in my jaw and pushed it in. And he said, if you open that door, I'll open your jaw with this oh. billy club. So I had to sit back, scared, oh. 19 years old, really scared and just listen to him spitting in my face before they, they let us go. And this is something that happened when we were 19 and I'm about to be 60 and I can remember it like it was yesterday. So, so yes, we had quite a few experiences. That's crazy to me. Just the trajectory of your life has different experiences. Of course, you grow, you know, you kind of figure out how to deal with yeah, yes. um, the officers or whatever. But does it ever end as a black man in this country? That's the problem. Um, we didn't know. So now going forward, you know, to say yes, sir, and keep your hands at a certain place. Because now two years later, while being at Cheney University, I was on my way to the airport dropping someone off. We come back. And so for whatever reason, we're pulled over on the New Jersey turnpike. We're college students on our way back. So the police officers are like, oh, what are you guys doing out here? Where are you coming from? We're explaining to them. And to me now, I had that other experience. So I kind of know to not move and not get out the car. But I'm still wanting to know why we're stopped. We're being screamed on. And um so they're telling us to get out the car. We're going to search the car. We didn't know we had the right to tell them they couldn't search our car. So my roommate is kicking me the whole time. I'm like, well, just search it so we can leave and we can get out of here. My roommate's like kicking me. I'm like looking at my roommate. Why are you kicking me? So apparently there was a, uh, a quarter filled 40 ounce bottle of beer underneath the seat that had been there for months. And I guess he knew it. I didn't know it. So when we got out the car, the police officers said, oh, is there anything we're going to find? So they found the bottle. So they were like, oh, in, in New Jersey, it's a mandatory whatever. We could take you guys down. So they're screaming on us. They put us against the car. They search us. And then they give us this long story. And then the guy says, all right, well, we're going to let you go. But you're going to take this and get rid of it. So he puts it in my hand and tells me to pour it out. So as I'm pouring it out, he grabs, I guess I'm not doing it fast enough. He grabs my hand and he makes me pour it out. And he's banging the bottle against my car. 
And he made me pour it out all against my car while banging the bottle against my car. And that was two years after the incident of my jaw being open. So driving around as a black person, you're going to always be conscious. And to this day, I hate sirens. I hate to see police. I have many more stories. We don't have time. But um, it's it's a real problem. To me, it's a real problem in America. And I don't you just deal with it. We're hoping you don't get stopped. Really. You just hope you don't get stopped. And that's such a contrast to, again, I'm basing this off how you started our conversation. (laughs) Right. You grew up with all these different ethnicities. Such a contrast. It was a big contrast. Yes. Well, tell me about another contrast. You already opened the door for that. You went to Cheney, which is a historical black college and university. Where is it again? It's in uh, Cheney, uh, Pennsylvania. It's about 20 miles southwest of Philadelphia. Basically, the story on getting to Cheney was I ran track in, in high school, so I was actually pretty good. And I wasn't thinking about college until I started running track. I had a very good mentor in Mr. Gia, Nicholas Giaquinto, who was my track coach, who saw something in me that I didn't know. And he developed me. And it was because of that development, I just started to pursue college. But back then, I wanted, and I think you guys know, I wanted to go out west. I wanted to go to uh, San Diego State and I wanted to go to San Jose State. And those were all the schools I was applying to. But my guidance counselor did not help me. And that's another equity that we don't have time for. But we got really shafted in our schools as well. He steered me away from those schools saying, oh, I don't think this is going to be the right fit for you. I didn't know anything. I knew about HBCUs because of my church and a lot, but I didn't know what HBCU was. And I definitely didn't know Cheney was one. He said, well, I think this will be a good school for you to go to. So I never knew. So uh, now I know that with his racist self, he was sending me to a black school when I wanted to go to California. So I got to Cheney and they, someone sent them my information on track and they actually thought I was a girl. So when I showed up on campus, they were like, uh, they was like, okay, we'll take you to see the coach. And so I go in the coach's office and they're looking at me and say, all right, so who are you? And I said, I'm Brian Dennis from Connecticut. And they was like, Brian Dennis from Connecticut. And I said, yeah, I'm the track person you're looking for. And they were like, oh, we thought it was Brianna Dennis. We thought it was a girl. And so they were like, we were wondering about those times. We were, we thought we was getting the next Wilma Rudolph because my they had my times, but they thought I was a woman. So that was my first introduction into Cheney of them mistaking me being a, a female when I was really a male. And so that's where my journey began. I went there to run track and uh, that journey was a great journey because I got to see life with my culture and how it was developed with all the sororities and all the different things that go on on campus and it makes and our the way we bonded together. But because I ran track, I also traveled. So I got to run in the pen relays. I got to be at the Mount Sac Antonio relays. I ran with people like Carl Lewis and all the people of those times. And so my experiences of going all over the place and traveling and track really enhanced my life even further. And I also, as you know, took a hiatus from Cheney and I went to school out in Oklahoma for a year. 
And I also went to school in Utah for a year before I came back and I finished up at Cheney. So, so wait, so, talk about that for just a second, because you're talking about going from a black school. Yeah, oh, and there you go. So I went from a black school all the way to a white school where there was only 50 of us. on No, 35 of us on campus. How do you when still I, remember that? How do you I, still remember I, those numbers? Because you're never going to forget those moments. So when I got on campus in Oklahoma Christian College, there was only 35 of us and we had to bond together. It's oh, everything in every stage of life in our culture where we go and we're not well represented. We you have to bond or you're not going to survive. So, again, on that campus, all 35 of us bonded together and we demanded stuff for us to do because there was nothing for our culture. I remember one time we formed a night to go bowling and we had a curfew at Oklahoma Christian and we stayed out past curfew. So we all got reprimanded for um, for that. But we still up for because we're like you guys don't give us any all the white kids get to go here and go there and we're sitting on campus so we you know we had those those things and then i left from there and i went to southern utah state which is also all white and it was at there it was only 50 of us on campus and most of us were athletes matter of fact all of us were athletes. It was the football, basketball, and track. And there were maybe three black women on campus at Southern Utah State. Um, it was a small campus of about uh, 4,000 students. So imagine there was only 50 of us. Again, they had nothing for us. So what happened was we had an event where the uh, one of the basketball players' cars got somebody sliced his tires, all of them. And so we had been getting picked on like that periodically through racism. And so we we all decided we we're going to march to the president's house and demand that they protect us and give us our rights at that school. And me being from the East Coast and I guess having that accent, they used to call me New York, even though I'm from Connecticut. It's like, oh, I know New York going to go up there and, and march with us and show out. And here I am, the first one marching, leading them. I'm like, you know, being an aggressor, I'm like leading the crew and we're marching to the president's house and we're demanding that they find out who did this and that they bring them to justice. And we made it so loud that the papers and newspapers picked it up. And uh, we had some advisors that were actually really cool. One of my uh, teachers, history teachers who taught um, history on Indians, he decided to be our advisor. And so he came together and to the school and said, why don't we allow them to form their own student union? So I'm a part of the first black student union at Southern uh, Utah State College, which is now, I believe now, Southern Utah University. And uh, I'm a part of the first black student union that we developed. And it developed out of that incident of us protesting of, of the racism that was taking place on campus against us. So. Those are some of my many journeys and many journeys of understanding life and learning people and going to different places and learning how to survive. But believe you me, when I came back to the East Coast, I was like, I'm not going back out there. And that's how I ended up finishing up at Cheney. <laughs> I get it. So, but the experiences probably you, you obviously carried them with you for your entirety because this is when you're, yes. you know, in your early 20s or your late teens. Your earlier right? tw- yes. We're going to wrap up in a second. Yes. But truthfully, we have to come back and have some more conversations. Brian. Oh, yeah. I have a lot for you that in terms of life and hopefully it can help someone, uh, especially our young people. Um, and I can share with you some programs I'm working on to help them with my experiences to kind of be there for them where I where we didn't have this type of mentorship coming up. We had to 
all, everything I just shared with you, I had to just learn it on my own. I got myself into school. I got myself to every college I went to. It was me. Brian, I love it. I absolutely love it. And this conversation is so refreshing to me because, I mean, I've known you all these years, but I didn't know those stories. (laughs) And those who are listening, they probably didn't know your stories. And you have a lot of um, connections and family and friends, but maybe they didn't know your story. So our stories are so important. And thank you so much for um, being willing to share. And again, you're on the hook. You're coming back again so we can have some more conversation. (laughs) Yes, we'll come back and we want to address, help our children with financial literacy. I'll definitely come back with a whole segment for you on that. And there's more stories to that that will probably crack you up that goes with that as well. (laughs) I I know you saw me laughing because I'm like, oh, my God, how does this even happen? But my dear brother, thank you so much for being with me. And until next time, we'll talk soon. Yes. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'll be listening and I'll be tuning in. I'll be subscribing and I'll be sharing. Thank you, my brother. All right. Thanks for listening in today. Special thanks to our producer, Renette Shafu and executive producer, David DeRoche. Special shout out to the Fluid Truth crew for their assistance. That's Jillian Catalano and Jake McCarthy. Music is provided by Audio Hero from their Jazz Lounge album. To hear more about all of our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. You can listen to our podcast on the platform or app of your choice. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at qupodcasts. If you have a story to share or something you want to talk about, find us on social media or shoot us an email. That address is qupodcast at qu.edu. All right, that's it for today. Till next time.